From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is Tim Schur. Tim knows what it takes to build a winning team. He spent almost a decade of his career launching two brands, Story Brand and Business Made Simple, as COO alongside New York Times bestselling author Donald Miller. Before that, Tim worked at Tom's as well as Apple Incorporated. Tim is the author of The Secret Society of Success and the host of the Build a Winning Team podcast. He's also the CEO of David Novak Leadership, a private operating foundation whose mission is to make the world a better place by developing better leaders at every stage of life. On today's episode, we're going to consider the relationship between job satisfaction and the ability to maintain an optimistic outlook. Tim has some interesting ideas on this subject, and today he and I will focus on three themes. The first, redefining success by moving from chasing the spotlight to embracing what Tim calls the Michael Collins model. And if you don't know who Michael Collins was, you will soon. Second, changing our mindset by not asking what's in it for me, but rather, what am I doing for others? And third, the positive power of recognition. Tim Schur, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Oh, man, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. You are the ultimate optimist, and this is going to be a lot of fun. And I spent the last uh, few days reading your fabulous book, The Secret Society of Success, and as I have shared with you on this Blue Sky podcast, what I'm trying to do is, is talk to folks who are working on difficult challenges, uh, but bringing to it a, a contagious, infectious sense of optimism. And it occurred to me reading your book that one of the big challenges we have is how many people just don't like what they're doing for a living. And you had in your book a statistic from Gallup that said that of the 1 billion full-time workers around the globe, only 15% are fully engaged in their work. So I'm wondering what it was that caused you to get so excited to sit down and write a book. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, why'd you write The Secret Society of Success? Well, I'll tell you, there was a season in my life when I wanted to be the next John Mayer. Okay. <laughs> yep. I had the hair to go along with the whole thing. Nice. It was beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> and what was interesting is I tried really, really hard and I just couldn't ever get a whole lot of traction. Yeah. And it was interesting because then in my career, as I've, I've stepped into more and more roles behind the scenes when this dream of being a musician completely failed. Right. And I found that the, the further I got away from the stage, trying to be the guy in the spotlight, trying to be the one that everyone was talking about, actually was finding more and more contentment and fulfillment in my work, which was very different of, a, of an approach because a lot of people would say to be successful, you have to be in the spotlight, climbing the ladder, the boss. Right. But I wasn't achieving that level of success. And yet my fulfillment and satisfaction was through the roof. And I now was sitting in what I would have considered a dream job as the right hand to somebody running a business 
loving my life, loving my work, but I'm not this person who some would have looked at and labeled as, quote, successful. Yeah, right. And so all of a sudden I started to think, well, maybe there's other people like me that that there's just something that doesn't sit right when they hear that success only looks like X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. Like maybe success, maybe the kinds of ways that we should be looking at our careers should be shaken up a little bit. And that's kind of what this whole journey was all about. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to let you off the hook on the John Mayer part. So, uh, and because most are <laughs> listening in, uh, let's just say your hair is high and tight now. It is not long and John Mayer flow. But in your book, you talked about, so obviously you were a talented musician. You are a talented musician. And part of it seemed that set you sort of astray in trying to be John Mayer was the ways you were trying to get in that spotlight. And I should say now, you mentioned in the book, you coined yeah. a phrase, the spotlight mindset. You told a story about summer camp yeah, yeah. as a path to musical startup. If you could share that, I mean, it just I think it shows how you can get led astray by this desire to be in the spotlight. Well, I, I like a lot of people, you see somebody who's several steps ahead of you in your career doing something that you really want to do. You study everything about them. You then try to model the steps that they took in your own life. If it was successful for them, maybe this would be successful for me. And there was a time that um, some of these singer-songwriters that I really, really respected, they would go and play music at these summer camps. And so here you have hundreds of students each and every week cycling through. You're the camp musician. They look at you like you're the greatest thing to ever happen. And and these kids buy your CDs. They buy your T-shirts, you know, the whole thing. And then when they go home, they're talking to their friends about you and this incredible experience they had at camp. That would then lead to me being able to do more concerts in their hometowns. I mean, this was my path to making it as a singer-songwriter. So I tried really hard to find a way to get in playing one of these camps, and I finally got one. I was up in Minnesota I was playing for this junior high camp and I was like, this is it. I mean, I just saw the path to success, but I end up finishing up this week and I've sold some CDs, but I didn't sell as many as maybe I imagined I would. And, you know, you fast forward a few months later and, and these kids aren't calling me or their parents, you know, teachers aren't calling me to come and perform our shows. And And I'm just sitting here so perplexed, wondering why. And the more time that I spent now removed from that, the more that I see my intention from the very beginning was not actually to add any value to them, really. I just wanted to, it it was very transactional. Right. You know, I just kind of thought, okay, I'm going to come show up. I'm going to do my thing and you're going to buy whatever it is that I'm selling. You're going to think that I'm great. And I just think that what can happen for so many of us is it's not necessarily the way that I was doing it, like the actual showing up at the camp, being able to perform. It's not that that was a bad strategy. I feel like for me, what was so wrong about it was kind of my intention behind the whole thing. Right. And I think for so many of us in our careers, we can kind of get a little hijacked by you know, somebody telling us that this is all about us. And, right. you know, the more that I have learned to, how can I come and, and offer value to somebody? How can I show up and be thinking of what problems they're experiencing, how I can maybe help somebody solve their problem? 
that's how businesses should actually function. Right. Not to try to be the hero of the story, but more to be like the Yoda to Luke Skywalker. How can somebody be a guide? And um, and I feel like that's what I got very wrong. <laughs> yeah. In that time, and and you know the results showed for it. Really, I was just uh, very very off in in that approach. Many of you will agree that we learn just as much from failures as we do from success. And it's helpful here to think about why Tim's effort to use summer camps as a pathway to being the next John Mayer failed. His problem was largely that this arrangement was transactional, not authentic. Yes, he showed up for the kids, but he wasn't doing it for them. He was using them to try to advance his dream of being in the spotlight. Tim describes in his book that it was in moving from pursuing a career as a musician in the spotlight to a business person in the background that he learned some valuable lessons about the importance of showing up for others, not just yourself. Enter the story of Michael Collins. You know, if there's been one person that has been this aspirational identity, uh, it's a guy named Michael Collins. And there's a lot of people that are familiar with Apollo 11, right? You know, yes. one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what a lot of people don't know, there's a third astronaut on that mission aside from Neil and, and Buzz. And Michael Collins is his name, and he ubers Neil and Buzz to the moon. He's the <laughs> right. one who gets them there. Yeah, He didn't even get a tip. <laughs> exactly. But then he drops these guys off. They then do all the stuff they have to do on the moon. Well, he stays back in the command module, doesn't get to walk on the moon. He stays no. in the command module and waits until they're ready to be picked up. And in fact, he orbits the moon like 26 times, just kind of buying some time until they're, they're, yeah. they're ready to, you know, yeah. he gets that text saying we're ready to be picked yeah. up and they all head back home. <laughs> right. And, right. and what I love so much about the story is, is Michael's perspective on the whole situation. When he gets back to earth and sits down with the press, he's not resentful. He's not talking yeah. about, well, it sure would have been nice to actually walk on the moon. Like that's not it at all. And in fact, it's a very, very different response. He talked about how content he was to have had one of those three seats. Yeah. So why is it that for us to be successful, we feel like we have to walk on the moon and whatever part of, you know, our worlds that we live in. Because I think what Michael shows is a very different model. He shows us that there actually can be contentment playing the seat that you sit in, regardless of how much visibility or attention you might get in your, in your role. And so that whole what's in it for me mindset, I think is a killer. Because if Michael was thinking about the, the opportunity that maybe was just beyond him to, to walk on the moon, and, and he would have obsessed about that, he takes the attention from what actually was going on. And what was actually going on was something much bigger than him. And so he looked at it as an opportunity to add value, yeah. to be serving the, the mission, right. playing a huge part in it. But I just really love how he wasn't just caught up in that kind of fame or, or notoriety. And yet he, because he wasn't focusing on that, made history. Yeah. And I just love that. 
Tim says something powerful here about what he learned from the Michael Collins example, saying that you can find contentment regardless of which seat you're in. Collins accepted his role graciously and found plenty of fulfillment knowing that while he himself didn't walk on the moon, the other two Apollo 11 astronauts couldn't have done it without him. Interestingly, after becoming the most famous man in the world for a time, Neil Armstrong was never comfortable or happy with his fame. Collins, though, went on to a fascinating and fulfilling life after his astronaut career ended. He's worth a quick Google. And he died just two years ago at the ripe old age of 90. But when I mentioned to Tim the spotlight wasn't a great place for Armstrong, Tim wanted to be sure I didn't miss a key point. You know, what I've learned, and I think this is really important to to talk about for a minute, is the spotlight is not bad. The spotlight is not the enemy. And in fact, you know, we need the person standing in the center of the stage at the concert for the whole thing to work. I have no problems with that at all. The problem that I have is when the cultural messages are trying to tell me that that is the only role that matters. Right. And actually, you know, what I've seen in really successful teams and in really successful businesses and in society at large is when all of us are in it together, everyone playing their part, that's when magic happens. Right. And so that's, I think, just the shift that all of us need to make is what if success can look differently for each of us? What if there is not only one path, but what if the important thing here is You know, if I were to ask you or anyone listening, all right, fill in the blank for me. Success is, yeah. you know, how would you finish that? And I think that where a lot of us go wrong is if we're not intentional about something as simple as our own definition of success, if we don't learn to define it for ourselves, what happens is as a byproduct, we just are, are like subconsciously taking on others' definitions, which for a lot of us, looks like the ones that we're hearing a lot about, fame, money, power. And, you know, so I feel like I'm just asking this question, is it, is that, that's success? That's the only way that we can be happy? Or can we learn to look at the very idea of success a little bit differently? And that in and of itself unlocks something in our lives, allows us to be more optimistic about what is going on in our own lives satisfied with their own lives just by getting clear on what our definition of success is. Let's underscore what Tim said about being the person in the spotlight. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, as he says, we need the person standing at the center of the stage for the whole thing to work. The problem comes when the message is that this is the only role that matters. And I like Tim's idea of saying success is and filling in the blank. I'd encourage you to give it a try. You may learn something about yourself and think about your priorities and goals a little differently. Moving along, we spoke about book publishing and the vital role of editors. Tim described that some would say that the glory is in being the author with your name on the cover. But what if you really like being an editor? And you can take satisfaction in knowing simply that you played a role in that book's success, whether your name is on the cover or not. I also shared what Harry Truman once said, quote, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit, unquote. 
I'm a big believer in studying outsized, larger-than-life personalities and careers, because in these extreme cases, we can often distill lessons for ourselves. Tim Schur worked at Apple when Steve Jobs was still the CEO, and we talked about some of the things he learned from that experience. You know, when I was working at Apple, uh, I worked there, and for the first couple of years that I was there, Steve Jobs was the CEO. And I, I heard him say once, you know, the joy is in the journey. <laughs> and what I've come to, to realize, I think about what he was really saying is, fall in love with the work. Yeah. Not the accolades that you might get, not the awards that you might win because of that work, but the joy is in the journey. Fall in love with the work. And just like any organization, in any organization, you have a leader and that leader casts a shadow. Sure. So the people in the company operate based on, you know, how the leader is showing up. And um, I, I really love this story about Tim Cook because I think he models this whole idea of not needing credit brilliantly. So, you know, as we all know, Steve Jobs passes away. The person who'd been groomed to take over is Tim Cook. So at the release of the Apple Watch, Tim Cook is being interviewed on national television. And David Muir asks him, is this the moment for you, the moment of your career at Apple? Hmm. And it was an interesting question because you could see how Tim maybe would have responded in, in a myriad of ways. Because here Tim had been the past couple of decades in the shadows of Steve Jobs very much behind the scenes. People had no idea truly all that he had contributed to, to, to you know, help Apple be successful. So if you're Tim, maybe you're thinking, this is my moment, right? This is my first big product launch as the CEO, new, first new product in a new category since Steve had passed. You maybe want to use you know, that as an opportunity to like, hey, this, I'm, I'm the guy for the job, but Tim goes in the complete opposite direction. Is this the moment for you, the moment of your career at Apple? Tim says, well, it's a moment for Apple. I don't really think about myself that much. Wow. And, and I think that what he leads with in that moment, the shadow he's casting as a leader is he's showing up with humble confidence. Yeah. He's confident in that he knows what he brought to the table. He doesn't need to remind us all about it. But it's also humility to know that to create an Apple Watch, among other products, takes hundreds, if not thousands of employees. He's not going to try to take all of the credit. And, you know, the quote that you just shared, there, there was a plaque that sat on Ronald Reagan's desk with that quote. Really? Yeah. And, and I actually have a replica of the exact <laughs> same thing on my Does desk. Does it say Harry Truman? It doesn't well, say no... anybody. So I feel okay. like... Okay, I think it's Harry Truman. But he didn't care about getting the credit as the No, there's no limit to what a man right. can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. And I need that reminder too. The contrast between Jobs and Cook is really interesting. And it's my belief that Tim Cook has been a very underrated CEO. He succeeded someone who was bigger than life, a household name and an icon. And he did so not by trying to mimic his predecessor, but instead with his own low-key, understated sense of humility. It's really worked, and transitions from iconic CEOs often fail. For many years after Walt Disney died, 
his company floundered. And decades later, in that same organization, transitioning from Bob Iger still hasn't worked. And now he's back in the job. So I think that what Cook shows us is that even in occupying the spotlight, there are different ways to do it. And staying authentically true to who you are is ultimately what counts. And regarding authenticity, Tim's retelling of Steve Jobs encouraging people to find joy in the journey made me think. Steve Jobs, for all his incredible strengths, never struck me as a particularly joyful person. So I asked Tim if he thought that Jobs practiced what he preached here. You know, I think that for me, I wrote the book that I needed to hear myself. Okay. So so sometimes I feel like you write something down that you believe to be true, but you're still trying to convince yourself that it's true. You know, <laughs> okay. you, you, so I, I write this book about the secret society of success. Stop chasing the spotlight. Learn to enjoy your work in life again, because I feel like I'm wanting to believe that actually success in life can come by not having to be in the spotlight and in fact, finding contentment in your role. But that's a struggle for me and other people. It's like, we need those reminders. And I say that because I just wonder if Steve was doing the exact same thing. Right. You know, on the days when maybe he wasn't at his best, maybe it was harder for him to believe that the joy was in the journey. And maybe that was him almost setting something in motion as a like, that's a North star. Yes. And so I don't know. Yeah. But I think it's, it is a beautiful North Star, whether or not he believed it every moment of the day or not. I love Tim's honesty about writing his book almost as a reminder to himself. And I'll put my own cards on the table here. Yes, I believe wholeheartedly in the merits of maintaining an optimistic attitude. But am I always successful at this? No, I'm not. You can ask my wife. But doing this work and creating the Optimism Institute has been a great reminder and a handy North Star. And North Stars are helpful because they are, by definition, locked in place. This is very different from scoreboards, which Tim also writes about in his book. I shared with him some things I observed about Ted Turner, another outsized character, when I was working on a book with him about 15 years ago. You know, you hang around a guy who at the time was worth, you know, $2 billion and you're out in Montana and right up the street is Bill Gates, who's worth $20 billion. And there's, there's a scoreboard and a scorecard. And if, yeah. and, and Ted was pretty good about it. He used to joke about it. He said, don't feel sorry for me. You can get by on 2 billion, but, but <laughs> it's always going to be there and you're never going to be content if, if your no. scoreboard is, is, are those types of things. So I'd love for you to yeah. talk to, so what, like, what's your scoreboard or what do you recommend people have as their scoreboard if it's not going to be money, fame, spotlight? Yeah. This whole idea was tested right at the gate for me when I released my book, mm. because here I am launching out. I, I'd been in this company for a decade, launch out on my own as an author and a speaker. And so all of a sudden now, my success is contingent on the number of copies of my book that are sold. Sure. How many people are listening to my podcast, right? I mean, yep. so you could just, you see how that can very easily become the focus. And so then what do you do if book sales aren't where you want them to be? 
I feel like you're you're actually forced to answer the question and really believe it. What is success really? Yep. What is it really though? Because when I open up the book uh, and I read the dedication page, I I say to Judson and L, these are my two kids. There Judson's 5 and L is 3. Nice. And I say to Judson and L, may you learn to live in the way of the secret society. (laughs) And what I'm trying to say is success from that definition is about helping other people win. It's about setting yourself up in a headspace to serve others, not to be somebody who's always looking to be served. Right. And so when I think about what success actually is for me, that's what it was all about. Right. And also, you know, so many of the opportunities that I've been experiencing over the last six months since the book came out, I never even would have imagined. But it's interesting how those aren't connected to the number of books that were sold. So, yes, there are some times in our lives when these very clear scoreboards exist and they do matter. Yeah. But I think that when it comes down to it, at the end of somebody's life, they're going to be talking about the true scoreboard. Right. It, it, it comes, it, it becomes very clear what actually matters. And I, and I think that the greatest gift that we can give ourselves is to try to put some perspective on how we would define it earlier. Yes. You know, don't wait until you're on your deathbed to get clear about what success is because at that point it's too late. Right. You know, and so I can't tell you what everyone's scoreboard should be. That's, and I don't think anyone, even their best friend can tell them what their scoreboard should be. I think that is a personal decision. You need to look at what are these scoreboards? What are these things in your life that you really want? But, but I do really think it's, it's important to peel back the layers and just ask why, why, why? Right. Until you really do get the heart at what is motivating and inspiring to you that would bring the the kind of fulfillment that you're looking for, the the you know, the joy in your life. Yeah. And it's funny, back to your camp experience. I mean, not not to put it too crudely, you weren't thinking about how you could serve those kids at the camp by playing lovely music. You were, not at you, all. You were using not that. At all. You were, I, no, I, and I feel so horrible saying no, that, but I was should. not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I just was trying to be famous and it just <laughs> killed me. You right. Know? Right. No, it's it's amazing. And um so Talk about being comfortable not being in the spotlight. So you just mentioned you were uh, numbered. You you worked in Apple. Like you weren't right. You were close to Steve Jobs. It sounds like. I mean, you knew him. You were in meetings with him. I, I want to be. Hang on, hang on. I want to be very clear. I you're was in the building. Close you're in the Steve building. Jobs. I was several layers. But hey, he was my CEO. He was my boss. I can say that. Yeah. Uh, then you were number two at at StoryBrand. That's right. Yeah. And you mentioned David Novak, and I'd like to talk some more about that. But Talk to me about being that sort of, and maybe number yeah. two is a, a, a not a nice way to say it, but you're not at the top. What is it about that role that makes you so comfortable and so fulfilled? So it started for me, my first number two role was, so after I was a failed musician, I then started working as an artist manager. Oh, wow. And so I thought, okay, well, what I'm really good at is kind of details and logistics. And, you know, I, I feel like I understand the plan and and how to pull a team of people around to kind of go execute it. And so so he releases a record and then I found that I was actually just as fulfilled him releasing a record as 
I was when it was mine. And that just kept happening. And, you know, I was struggling as a musician to find like traction in my, in my career. But when I was this number two, I wasn't actually struggling with traction in my career at all. I actually found more people coming to me to be that number two. And it just kind of gave me confidence to lean into that. And now here I am 15 years later and I feel like this is my sweet spot. I actually <laughs> don't want to be anywhere else but working alongside somebody else. And I think sometimes you got to just go out there and give it a try to know really what works and resonates for you. But I think it was me trying some things, stepping in some of those roles, but then you know trying to reflect on, am I happy? Am I doing work that I love? And yeah. it just kind of kept coming back like, yes, yes, yes. You know. And I was reading this marketing book at the time by Chip and Dan Heath. And they did ask this question, are you demanding or attracting attention? Ah. And and I realized, man, and me trying to be a musician, I was just demanding people's attention and it was sure. exhausting. Sure. But now here I am working alongside a creative and finding that I was gaining traction and, and it was a lot more effortless and that was just a lot more enjoyable for me. I really like Tim's advice about thinking about your own personal scoreboard and doing it early. He also talks about what you'll measure yourself by in your deathbed. It reminds me of something that David Gardner of The Motley Fool said when I spoke with him for this podcast. He said he starts by imagining his future and then works back from there. This made me think back to when I was a young executive moving up the ranks at Turner Broadcasting almost 30 years ago. It was a heady time, and there were always opportunities to travel, work long hours, and weekends. But early on, thanks in large part to the example set for me by my father, I set for myself a mantra that I'd rather have Ted Turner fire me than my wife leave me or my kids not know me. It was pretty simple and straightforward, and it wasn't long before my job got to the point where this was going to be a tough thing to sustain. Ultimately, Reminding myself of this commitment made the tough decision to leave the company that much less difficult. Back to Tim, I asked him about one of his personal reminders that I learned about by reading The Secret Society of Success. You had a quick line in your book that I really liked where you said sometimes when you're getting stressed and you're a little off track and you pause, take a deep breath and you say, all right, Tim, who are we showing up for today? Oh, yeah. Can you describe that to me? I love that. Yeah. So I heard this guy named Andy Stanley speak at an event in Atlanta a few years ago. And uh, the event was around finding your purpose. And, you know, a lot of times when we're trying to to ask those deep questions, we're like, why am I here? Right. And so Andy, in this particular talk, he says, that's the wrong question. He said, the question that we need to ask is, who am I here for? Hmm. And what I love so much about that little shift is who am I here for still requires you to think about, you know, what you're good at, you know, bring that, bring your passions, your talents, your experiences to the table. But it's this little shift that has you asking all of that and bringing that to help somebody else, thinking of somebody else. And I love that idea so much that I went back to my office and created an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And up at the top, I wrote, who am I here for? 
And below it, I put the pictures and the names of every single person on my team and their families. Wow. Because on the days when I'm sure you've had these, the never ending inbox, the, you know, the, the calendar where all the colors are touching, like you yeah. don't have any space <laughs> anywhere. Those are the days when you just want to beeline it to your desk, not think about anybody else totally. and just get your stuff done. But those were the days I needed just that simple reminder to just say, all right, Tim, who are we showing up for today? <laughs> because that. those, it gave me perspective. And I just found that I often needed to have my antenna up for, you know, maybe a, a need that somebody around me had. And I feel like that, that line gave me a, that shift that I was looking for. So back to the three topics I mentioned when we started. We've talked about redefining success and the story of Michael Collins. Second, and related, the shift in mindset from what's in it for me to what am I doing for others? And now Tim's gonna talk about our third subject, the power of recognition. He starts this by telling a story about his current boss, David Novak, and things he used to do to recognize employees when he was CEO of Yum Brands. So what David would do as he'd be out in a KSC or, you know, or some somewhere, he would see an employee doing something well and he'd give them one of these recognition awards. So he'd write something on there, write their name, write them a little note. And then he'd say, hey, I want to get a picture with you. Uh, I want to take a, a copy of the picture. I'll send it to you, but I'm going to take a copy and put it on the walls in my office because when people walk into the CEO's office at Yum, I want them to see that you're the kind of person who's making stuff happen around here. Amazing. And so he starts filling the walls so much so that they, they ran out of room and had to start putting them on the ceilings. Wow. And so I think the idea here is that we all need that recognition. Whether or not we'd, we'd admit it, I actually think somebody just calling us out and saying, you know, thank you or good job or, you know, yeah. hopefully even more specific than that. but when somebody just takes a little bit of time to call you out, I think that what it does is it makes us feel a little less alone, a little less invisible. And it actually is the motivation that we need to keep doing our work with excellence and not to have to feel like we have to demand that we get attention or the credit. But when you have people just kind of giving you that and showering you with that, then I feel like that that also is, is what can create uh, some fulfillment and satisfaction in our work. It, it's a great story about David for a few reasons. One is um, I'm obsessed with the Gallup poll, but in terms of in terms of a difficult industry, the restaurant business is brutally difficult. Yeah, right. So it's it's a tough place to maintain you know good morale and engagement. So that's so recognition is important. Second thing would be that entire dis, uh, scenario described might have only taken David ten minutes. Yes, to, not know, even say that. thank right. Yeah. And it lasted a lifetime for the person for whom he did it. So that's another thing. So in terms of the efficient use of the CEO's time, you couldn't come up with a better one. And I was, years ago, I was uh, the top person at a cable network. And I had learned from my boss, uh, I, I was big on handwritten notes, just simple handwritten notes. And it, yeah. thank you for this. Boy, that was a great promo that you cut last week, whatever it is. Yeah. And I would write them and we'd in our office mail them like you used to do. And I remember I'd, I'd done that and and- it's probably 
three months later, I was, I was strolling the halls as I would. And I dropped in to say hi to someone in their cubicle, those soft sided cubicles we all had. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw the note that I had written pinned to the cubicle. Wow. And I, I almost froze because <laughs> I, I noticed it and I was so startled because I, I barely, re I remembered writing it once I saw it. I figured this person got it and went in the recycling. It was pinned to her cubicle. Wow. And I've never forgotten that. And then years later, I left another cable network and I got a thank you note actually from an employee. This shows you how low the bar is. And he said, I'll never forget how you always used to say hi to me in the cafeteria. Thought, wow. <laughs> why would I not say hi to you in the cafeteria? So, so whether you're number two, number one, whatever, the, the shadow that you cast is so huge. And I think people forget that. And so anyone listening who's in any leadership or even in a peer relationship, recognize other people, it takes you two seconds and it makes a huge yeah. impact on others. So when David was president of KFC, he used to give out a floppy chicken. <laughs> and so, you know, talk about of the importance of, of this or the impact that this can have on people. He went to uh, a funeral for somebody that he used to work with and they, they, they had their floppy chicken in their casket. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but there you go. That that just shows how meaningful this can be. And I, I read a, a, a study in a book called The Power of Moments. Yes. And they talked about, they, they went out and, and polled leaders. Do you frequently recognize your employees for the work that they do? And these leaders, 80% of them said, yeah, I do that. And then fortunately... They interviewed the direct reports uh -oh. and said, do your leaders frequently recognize you for the work that you do? Only 20% of them said yes. Interesting. And so this book calls that the recognition gap. And oh, interesting. The reality yep. is for a lot of leaders, it's not that we're bad people. <laughs> <laughs> we, it's just sometimes there's so much going on, we just don't right. even think about it. Right. And... You know, what I feel like I'm trying to push is this idea that, and, and same with David. I mean, David's just huge on making, re making recognition the, the number one behavior throughout the entire organization. Recognition is not just for leaders. Right. You as a colleague sitting alongside somebody in a cubicle can actually overhear a phone call that they, they had and say, wow, the way that you just talked to the customer was incredible. Like, yep. amazing. I, I just want you to know, I, I thought it was amazing. So even just taking 10 seconds to pop your head up above the cubicle and say that, I also think has just as much of an impact for people as them getting that from, you know, their leader. David Novak really is a remarkable person. And he was gracious enough to speak with me for what became Blue Sky Episode 7. If you haven't already listened to it, you might want to check it out. As Tim Schur and I talked, he described how he wound up learning about David and boldly asked if he could come work for him. David took an instant liking to Tim and eventually asked if he'd be interested in running David Novak Leadership, which in addition to the How Leaders Lead podcast, provides high-quality leadership training free of charge, which he'll describe shortly. And speaking of podcasts, when I was first contemplating creating Blue Sky, I was lucky enough to go to David for advice. 
and I reminded Tim about what happened next. When I decided I wanted to get into podcasting, David was one of the people I spoke to, and I said, I don't know how to do this. I don't know any equipment. <laughs> he said, call Tim. And I'm because you won't say this, I'm going to share with my audience that Tim got me set up with all this incredible equipment, the, the incredible production company in Nashville. You have served me so well. Uh, that I wanted to give you recognition because I, oh, I don't awesome. know if it sounds good or not, but I, it, it, whatever, however it sounds, it's, it's all thanks to you. So I can't, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. You really embody everything you describe in your book. And I just wanted to share that. Well, I'll tell you, there is nothing that I love more than not only connecting people and friends, but also assembling teams for really important projects like this. So the fact that y'all met and hit it off has uh, actually been a whole lot of fun for me too. Well, um, your book is called The Secret Society of Success. Um, so it's still available. I bought it and loved it. I, I hope people get out and buy the book. I highly recommend How Leaders Lead. I've been a big fan of that podcast. David is terrific. Is there any other work that we should know about that you're doing with David? Is 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 he still doing the leadership seminars and and those masterclass kind of work? Or yeah, describe you know, so that. What um. What was so fun is when I, I took this job, David said, you know, we're a nonprofit, but they had been selling things like online courses and essentially taking any of that money and just reinvesting it back into the business to, to make that available for more people. But David said, you know, what if we just start giving this stuff away for free? Huh. And so now these masterclass-like video courses on leadership if people go to howleaderslead.com, it's available there for free. And we're going to continue creating really great resources and content like that, truly with the aim of just helping people be at their best. You know, I feel like David really embodies this. And, you know, this quote is, is for me, a, a North Star. And it's this quote by Albert Schweitzer. And he says, I don't know what your destiny will be. Some of you will perhaps occupy remarkable positions. Perhaps some of you will become famous by your pens or as artists, but I know one thing. The only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. And you know, I think that's it. And you know, that's how I want to spend the rest of my career, kind of positioning myself in a way that I'm thinking of other people. And you know, if, if there was a way that I defined success, it's help others win. And I feel like if you're setting out to help others win, I just feel like that is you on a much better path. Wow. Well, we can't top that. So I, I want to just say a big thank you. And I, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll end where we started. I think if we can work together as a society to make work more fulfilling, to redefine people's definition of success, to have people thinking more about serving others than themselves, um, we're going to lift this rising tide is going to lift all kinds of boats. And so I will continue yeah. to follow your work and, and look forward to continue this friendship. And I can't thank you enough for the time today and also for, for everything you've done to launch my, my early podcast career. Thank you so much for everything. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tim Schur and that it gave you some things to consider. Regardless of where we are in our life and career, I think it's always helpful to check in with ourselves on what our own definition of success is 
and asking how well we're showing up for others. And it's my hope that the more we all do this, the more likely it is we'll find more satisfaction in work and that this in turn will lead us all to have a better, more optimistic view of life and our collective future. And speaking of an optimistic view, I hope you'll consider following the Optimism Institute on social media and tuning in again soon for another episode of the Blue Sky Podcast. And if you feel like it, please give us a rating or review. We'd love to hear what you think about how we're doing. And until next time, I'm your host, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.